With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. How you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for another episode of The Cutting Room Floor, a little podcast that I started to showcase any entertainers and creative types from all walks. And sometimes they're not entirely uh, all that indie, as you're about to find out. Um I'd like to say if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, then I want to hear from you. The easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. Uh, you can find me uh, there at Cutting Room MRB. You can ask anybody that knows me. I'm well engaged on there every day. Uh, or you can hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cutting Room MRB. Or better still, if you want to be on the show, if you've got a project that you want to promote, uh, let me know what you're thinking, good, bad, or ugly. Shoot me an email, cuttingroomfloor.mrb at gmail.com. We'll figure out a way to get you on here if you got a crowdfunding campaign that you're looking to promote we'll try to create as much awareness for you as we possibly can we're always looking for people um so i also wanted to give a quick shout out as i've been doing lately to uh to my dear friend and frequent collaborator lynette carrington uh who's instrumental in setting up this interview today for for a number of different reasons um Lynette has been working with the Chandler International Film Festival for the last couple of years, and I actually was enlisted to uh, help do some podcasting work for them. So I'm going to be doing some additional shows throughout the course of the next couple of months. Uh, the Chandler International Film Festival is going to be taking place, of course, in Chandler, Arizona from the 21st to 24th of January. Um, you can find more information on them at chandlerfilmfestival.com. Uh, and with me on the uh, on the line today, I've actually got the privilege of being able to speak with the um, with the president and festival director, uh, Matesh Patel, is here. Uh, so just to give you some information on him, uh, he is actually a, a prolific filmmaker in his own right, who's uh, been making you know one or two films a year for uh, about the last. 10 years or so, uh, his debut feature was a, um, a film called The Man in the Maze uh, that went on to win 12 awards on very, in various festivals. And then in 2012, a few years back, um, uh, he made a, a picture called uh, Delph, uh, Delhi Safari that was, believe it or not, actually even shortlisted for the Academy Awards in 2012. Uh, he also balances his life between uh, Hollywood and Bollywood, as he says, and, and uh, between it all. And one of these people has got a whole bunch of stories, I'm sure, and I'm, I'm happy to have him on here. Uh, the head man in charge from the Chandler International Fall Festival, Matesh Patel, is here uh, for the first time. So, Matesh, uh, welcome to the cutting room floor, and thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Casey, to having me here at this uh, podcast. Uh, so the first question I always have for everybody when they're on here for the first time, Matesh, is uh, just a bit of an icebreaker. Did, did I get your bio information right, or is that close enough, or is there anything that you'd like to add or modify? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's right. Yeah, that's the uh, first movie, right? Delhi Safari is right. Yeah, working in uh, Hollywood and Bollywood both. So yeah, it's uh, it's 
almost accurate. <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, so I, I guess we can, you know, dive into the, uh, you know, the the substance of the our chat today. I, I know that you've been working on the, uh, you know, the Chandler International Film Festival. Uh, this is the fifth year that you're going into this, right? That uh, you started it back in 2016. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, this is the fifth year we're going. And, and I, I guess, how did you come up with the idea of, of uh, you know, from from making your own films to 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 taking a broader step and and you know, opening it up and, and creating a whole new festival out of this? Was this something that was already existing when you were brought on board? Or, or uh, I guess, you know, how, how did you come to be involved with it? Or how did you start it? Well, it's uh, definitely uh, when I made my first movie and I was submitting to a lot of film festivals and it's kind of exciting. I went to a couple of film festivals, meet with, uh, you know, the filmmaker, some of the, you know, distributor and start knowing about the industry. So I thought it's, it's a great idea to have a festival. And uh, 2016, I moved uh, to Chandler from LA and uh, I don't see any film festival or film people here in, in Chandler, Arizona. So that's the first thing I got in mind. Like, let me just start a small film festival where I can at least meet with the local filmmakers and, you know, at least this way we can work together. So that's how it started, you know, with this small idea of having few filmmakers together. You know, I didn't have a plan to make it big or anything, but just want to keep it somewhere where the people can meet uh, and, and do something together, you know. And uh, that's how we started this. Uh, that's how I started this festival uh, back in you know, 2016. So what were some of the first steps that you took? Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the, how the festival has evolved and, and uh what were some of the first steps that you took when you when you were actually getting this off the ground? Like, I guess, how did you go about inviting people to contribute and, and uh, creating awareness for yourselves? So um, when I started this festival, um, the, the biggest challenge is like you know putting out, putting everything together, and uh, inviting everyone. Um, no doubt, the funding is one of the big things, and. Uh, the good thing is I, you know, I produce my own movie, so I have my own funding way of that. So I, I put around like 35000 in the very first year, and uh, it was all spent. You know, there was no much of the income which we received. I mean, there was some, but it was very less. But what we hear from people was great about the festival, and people was, you know, it was from around the world. You know, one of the guys came from Russia, uh, and he was saying that I don't believe this this festival is the first year. <laughs> so the challenge was only the funding. You know, that's the biggest challenge because, you know, it's very hard to get it funding when you are a new festival and people don't know, like, uh, it exists or not. And, you know, sponsor even, like, willing to, I mean, you know, they they want to put more where we see a couple of years and known festival or something like that, which is not. So, yeah, that was one of the challenges we had it. I, I guess how would you? I mean, I know that that uh, you know the the film festival, you know, the film scene in general in Arizona is, I mean, that's a big market, right? I mean, considering the the proximity of Los Angeles, right? Uh, I, I guess what what are your own views of, of the film scene in Arizona right now? Uh, well, compared to LA, I think it's not a big market. I mean, okay, right. population-wise. 
Arizona is kind of like, um, I don't know, 6 million or some population on that. I think it's number six biggest uh, city in U.S. So it is, but uh, compared to that, like, you know, you can't compare with L.A. You know, L.A. is full of, you know, films and filmmakers. Here is different, you know. So uh, I learned that and I'm trying to make it better. <laughs> so this festival is helping us to, to do better. We're getting people from around the world. They come here, they enjoy, and now we feel like we are a little hub of filmmakers here. So it's better now, uh, but it still requires a lot of more work to to make one of the top one or something. Do you, do you have a target demographic or, or audience for filmmakers uh, in general? Like, are you targeting uh, mostly independents, or are you open to the? Uh, to the stuff from the bigger studios as well. I, I guess what's the composition of the submissions like, generally speaking, and, and has it changed at all? Mm-hmm. So the way we do it, definitely we wanna help promote uh, independent filmmakers because you know they they are the one who need more help. Um, but we also welcome the studio, and uh, we've been screening. Uh, studio movies also because you know some sometimes the audience want to watch some some big uh, big actor big movies and then or even like the some classic movie too you know so we bring a variety of films but definitely when it comes to support we support the the independent filmmakers and uh, promote more of their work first um, in this festival and what are some of the things that you that that you look for as uh, you know kind of markers or quality or, or you know some of the things that you look for uh, in in terms of submissions? Uh, yeah, so um, definitely when we are going through the review to all the submissions, uh, we want to make sure that the quality is is good. And um, again, and I mean, no doubt it's a challenge for, you know, especially low filmmakers, uh, low budget filmmakers. But um, uh, there is this filmmaker who have made movies with a couple of thousand and have made a great movie. So we're always looking for a quality work, uh, you know, good story, good script, and, uh, uh, you know, how they have their production values and all that. So we do definitely look more on that. Uh, well, what are some of the categories that that uh, that you guys typically uh, you know give awards for? Like you know some of the you know the main ones that you typically see, like best feature, best short subject. But uh, do you have any mm-hmm. categories that are kind of unique to to your festival in particular? Yeah, so we have around like twenty four categories. So mostly we're covering all okay. kinds, of especially the short films one, because you know there's so many short films out there and. There's so many good ones. So we mostly created all the top <laughs> categories for short filmmakers. Uh, definitely feature options are there too. Uh, but a couple of uh, unique category is like uh, um, Best Arizona Film. You know, that's one of that because we want to promote local filmmakers too. So we create separate category. So they're not com- competing with, you know, some bigger studios or something. At least they have their own category. Uh, then we have a couple new ones which we created this year. So uh, the local high school, Chandler High School, um, we created a new category for them because there's a video department and there's the kids who are making uh, movies uh, and submitting to Chandler Film Festival. So we created a category for them. 
Uh, we also created a new category this year. It's called uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, Films. So this one is also from the Boys and Girls Clubs. Uh, they are one uh, making and, and submitting to this one. So that's a special one. We have it. Um, we also have uh, another category, which is not for film, but we always have it, uh, Dr. A.G. Chandler Award, which is goes to local artists uh, in, in, uh, in Chandler. So we always look for a local artist who is good on not just in a film, it could be art or anything else. And uh, we just uh, honor them. Uh, you know, we look for it and, and find it and then honor them at the award ceremony. Um, uh, yes, I guess uh, this is some special categories. We have it. No, and it's interesting that, that you're, uh, you have a couple of categories for, for young people in terms of bringing the high school into it, too, that, that uh, you're encouraging the next generation of filmmakers, which I think is kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, that's that's important to have it. So, you know, they have a dream and they want to do something. So at least this is a way at least they can start working on it. No doubt it won't be the best quality because they don't have all the tools and knowledge, but uh, at least they will create and start making something from there. Uh, has the venue always been the same for for in terms of where you host it, or have you, you know, has your attendance gone up to the point where you, you've had to source a bigger venue over time? So you know, uh, this year is uh, as you know that it's the toughest year for everyone, and uh, all the festival I know that is um, making online or canceling out or you know something like that. But I think differently. I think a different way of doing it, and I think we are doing a lot better than even any other uh, in the past four years. Uh, we come up with the three different options. So we're going okay. to parking which we had it last year too um it's all good we're following the same uh, you know all this uh, cbc guidelines going with the social distance and mask and all that uh, uh, stuff which we need to do it but we're going in theater physically so all the local people can go on theater and enjoy in a big screen watching this movies uh we're also doing a driving so it's a driving uh, theater we have it here in downtown it's a big parking lot. It could fit around 100, 150 cars. And we have 40 feet uh, big screen, which we arranged for that. And uh, every, uh, I think well, there's a two days in the, in the festival, the second and third day we're doing the screening over there. So the local people can also watch from, uh, you know, from their car or, you know, um, and enjoy it without having any issue. The third option, the people who cannot travel to the festival, you know, there's so many uh, around the world. Um, so we have the online option, uh, which they can go online and watch the same movies on that. So I think this year we're going to be better uh, than any other year because now we have more option to, to, to give it to them. And, and, and I, I was kind of curious in terms of your own view of, of, of the way that the, that the pandemic is kind of impacted the film market because in, in a weird way i mean yeah there are restrictions on terms of how people can consume you know their entertainment right but but i would also argue fairly convincingly that uh you know the appetite to some extent has never really been greater because you've got people that are spending that much more time at home right the the, the mm -hmm. you know they're mm -hmm. they're they're, cra they're craving good stories to consume right that's that's right. 
Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, the year which is kind of a good and bad both sides, more of the bad side. But I think a couple of area which is kind of a good because, you know, more of the people can watch more movie now online. So that's a benefit. But as a filmmaker, I see both sides. I see the good side because now independent filmmaker can make a good movie and their own and then sell it easily because there's no much of the production going on, especially big budget one. Um, and other hand, uh, you know, they all have to suffer too at the same time. So, you know, it's a both side, I guess. Do you think that the notion of virtual events, uh, and I, I've I've heard both sides to this argument, but, but do you think that the notion of virtual events, even when things to start to, you know, approach hopefully very soon, uh, you know, a level of normalcy, do you, do you think that virtual events are going to be, in essence, come a, become a new part of normality in terms of the way that people consume events that, that, that they're going to say, oh, you know what, there is a more convenience in being able to do things this way and, and that there's always going to be a home for virtual events as opposed to going right back to the, to the in-person ones, full tilt. And uh, yes, uh, I think that's a big thing now. Uh, because people didn't think of it before, or if they think of it, like they did not apply for it. But now, since they did it for 2020, uh, I think it's a big uh, or another option open up for everyone. I never think of uh, doing the virtual meeting before. You know, I like to do it physical always. I like to meet with them and, you know, just seeing each other is more better to deal with in all the stuff. But this year, you know, I deal with so many on and virtual film markets and film festivals. I learned the way um, it is working good now. So I feel like even next year, when everything back to normal, it'll be a challenge for people to have uh, more of the physical option because you know now they have the option of doing vir- virtual. So why they want to do it, you know? So I I wonder how the cons and AFM and other film markets gonna work on this. And look like that, they will do physical and virtual. Uh, this way, they don't lose the people who already, you know, they already have uh, did it before. So I feel like it, it's a new way of doing the, you know, um, business or, you know, any other thing. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm kind of curious about this, and I, I, I have a sale background myself, and, and, um, I was kind of interested in your your take on uh, on workshops, which I understand are, are you know kind of a common tent pole for for a lot of film uh, festivals. And in addition to you know say the actual screening, which is what everybody normally associates with a film festival, but do you guys also run any workshops in conjunction with the uh, with the Chandler Festival? Yes, we do it. Uh, we do every year, and mostly it's physical. Uh, we never did any virtual one. But this year, uh, we are uh, thinking of doing it. We, we, we're planning to do it, somebody, if we can do physical and virtual, both. So, you know, I'm, I'm still working on that area. We had one option, but look like that since the, the, the virus is spreading out uh, more um, now. So I don't know that it's going to be good in January or not. So it's going to be kind of like December where we make a decision on January, how we want to put it just a virtual or do virtual and physical. So, so what are some in past years, like what are some of the topics that you covered by way of workshops, just by way of examples? Sure. So uh, we did so many actually. Um, 
the most common one is, is filmmaking and and every year we bring some uh, you know different person and and their experience and how they are putting everything together uh, especially for the filmmakers who make the short films or new filmmaker i think they want to know that how this they can do better on there so there is a way of doing it and every year i bring somebody new uh to the the workshop and new way of uh, new technique of showing that but we also have a distribution uh, workshop too we also have editing workshop too. we also have um what else uh, uh i think we have so many i can't remember right now but we have so many a uh, lot of options uh, in in the workshops uh, and, and I know that uh, in the past, I mean, I was looking at the last couple of years specifically, you guys have had some really interesting guests that mm -hmm. have actually turned up for this too, right? Some, some, you know, recognize, fairly recognizable celebrities that, that have managed to show up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at names that, that I've seen a lot of their films, people like Robert Davi and, uh, uh, you know, Michelle Rodriguez have actually been there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So they came, they came last year. And uh, I think, you know, because of we are building up to the community and showing that how, you know, good we are doing for for everyone, not just, uh, you know, local uh, people, but also for the film uh, filmmakers too, for the film uh, community also. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of helping us to to build that impression that people want to come out and, and do something at that. So in the same time, we are supporting their movie, we're screening something or do something special for them. Uh, but I think that uh, it's building up, and and every year we're getting a bigger and and better, uh, you know, name who's coming out to the festival. So yeah. And I I thought I read someplace too that you guys ran some kind of uh, anniversary screening for the Goonies, uh, which was a film that I saw a lot of uh, growing up. Is it, is that possible? Yeah. So we did that last year. Um, he was thinking to run something, and uh, Robert Davi was coming for uh, one of his uh, newer movie, uh, Moth Heaven, I guess. Uh, that's the last year uh, closing night movie. So he was coming for that, and uh, we was planning to put something for Boys and Girls Club, you know, so the kids can watch some kind of, you know, kids movie. And then we come up with the Goonies, which, you know, Robert Davi is in it too. So that's why we, we screened that last year. And uh, you touched on the, uh, you know, just now the, you know, the, the nonprofit partnerships that, that you've got in place. And I, I want to make sure that I get in a, a mention of a couple of them. Uh, Ascend, uh, AZ Send, uh, ICANN mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, Boys and Girls Clubs, right? Uh, that these are groups that, yeah. that uh, you know, that you've done business with in the past and, and helped to support. Uh, are there any for for this year that that you'd like to make mention of? So actually, Ascend and ICANN is the first time this year we're doing partnership with. The okay. Last year was uh, uh, Boys and Girls Club, which we're doing this year too. Then we had uh, uh, another one. We have a couple of actually. The one they call um, Chandler Manufacturing. We did that for. A uh, year before, then we did the Phoenix uh, Children Hospital. We did for that too. Um, yeah, every year I think there is at least two nonprofit we add up. So this year we have ICANN and uh, Ascent. And, and what do those organizations do for uh, for the uninitiated like myself? Uh, you know, what uh, maybe you can give us a quick pitch on um, Ascend and and uh, ICANN. 
Sure. So uh, Ascend is, uh, I think they're like 50-year-old nonprofit. It's one of the oldest one here in, in Arizona, probably. That's what uh, I know of. Uh, they uh, help um, the people for providing the food, you know, so um, below, I think, the, you know, the low-income category, I think, you know, I don't know how they look it, but they have the people who go every day and then they, they're not feeding there, but they provide the food to them, you know, so basically it's kind of a food bank. Um, and uh, what we are doing in this festival is we're collecting the food and donating to them. So the people who, uh, you know, some local people, if they want to bring the food instead of the paying money for ticket, they can do that too. So this way we get some more food and we can uh, uh, donate to a fan. Um, and uh, yeah. I can Sorry. Uh, sorry. No, that's very generous of you that, that you allow people that option to uh, to do to uh, to get back to the community a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, I think that's the best way of doing it. So people, you know, I mean, they have, you know, uh, I prefer that option. Very good. Bring some food and help to the community, you know, and they don't have to spend the money for a ticket. So it's a 50 percent off, depending on what show they are going with. But uh, uh, whatever you know, amount of food they're bringing, we're giving that much off, and they can uh, they can watch the the movies in the festival. And I can was the other one. So yeah, so I can. It's uh, it's a kid education um, nonprofit organization. I'm still learning a lot, but I'm into their place, and uh, they have so many programs. But helping the kids for you know education from their uh, it's more of the kids related. So there's a lot of like for transportation or for other activity and all that. They do so many. It basically it's like a, a extra like um, after our school uh, for for kids. And uh, they have so many activity. I'm I'm still learning a lot from them. But basically, what we are doing is uh, we're gonna create one of the screening and all the proceeds goes to. I can. So we're going to collect all that uh, uh, money and then donating to them so they can just uh, buy whatever they need for the kids uh, from there. And uh, I, I know that you have a lot of people that are uh, that are helping you. Uh, I was, you know, reading over on your on your web page there, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of the uh, the board of directors. Uh, you know, you've got people that are that are engaged in various roles. I, I was just wondering. Um, uh, I, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but uh, if you'd care to give them a shout out uh, in, in terms of all the effort that, uh, that that you got behind you. To to get everyone on board, I guess. Well, no, just to just, just to you know uh, you know anybody you know. People that you'd like to thank in terms of uh, of the effort that that uh, you know people that have helped you. Everybody putting for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so basically, you know, I'll start from the beginning. I, I I'm the founder, right? So I started in 2016, and I was just myself. I have no idea how the festival runs and all that, but I figure out that the better option because we are giving back to community. So I, I register as a nonprofit, and uh, I think year third, uh, I start putting uh, the board members together. So I have a vice president, uh, 
Barry Ramirez. Uh, she is the great help for me because she started as a social media person, uh, third year of Chandler Film Festival, but I see the energy and she has the reason of uh, making this festival better. So I offer her to be vice president and then she come on board and then she's the one who work hard to bring other board members together. But uh, she is the biggest help for me. She follows a lot from me, so she's like uh, on top of my head, <laughs> which is a very good. I like that, and uh, we work together. You know, we we like that. Uh, you know, how our reason is is matching, and you know, we have the energy to do something. So that's a great stuff. Um, then we have, uh, you know, we bring other board members. So we have vice uh, mayor Rene Lopez. Uh, He's also a big help for us because, you know, as I say, like I never did any kind of non-profit before. So it's a big help to understand how it work and, uh, you know, what should we do and how we, you know, raise funding and you know, what, you know, law should apply or how we can do it better and all that. So he's helping us a lot on that. And uh, so do others, actually. All of the board members, they have their own duties. Uh, and they're doing uh, really good of um, all of them. So I'm really happy with uh, everybody's uh, giving their own side. And everybody is unique, you know. So uh, Lynette uh, Carrington and uh, Melody King, she joined it um, uh, last year. Uh, I mean, this year, actually, 2020. And they both are doing really good, you know. So they all have their own expertise. But I think it's going to take another hour just to explain that one. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and Matesh, I, <laughs> while, while I have you on the line, I, I'd, uh, I'd like to uh, to thank you for bringing me on board to to be able to work with you as well. This is something that, uh, you know, I view as a high honor to be able to work with the film festival. And, and uh, it, it's it, I'm really looking forward to being able to cover the stories for you as best I can, okay? So thank you. Thank you for, you know, uh, joining Chandler Film Festival, you know, as I say, like, we are very simple people and, uh, you know, we just love movies, nothing else, you know, so we have a simple passion of making movies and, you know, we want anybody who, who love movies, you know, so they just do their part. So, you know, once I find out about you, I say, yeah, why not? Let's do this, you know, so that's the way it goes. You know, I'm a very simple person and try to make it, if somebody have reason and somebody want to give something, then yes, we are open to it. And I think that's how we created this festival. <laughs> uh, I want to take a, a, a quick pause here. I've got uh, John Otto on the line. Uh, John, just so that you know, Michelle, uh, uh, just so that you know, Matesh, is uh, a referral from uh, another good friend of the show, Michelle Charmaine. Uh, John's actually a uh, an architect out of the Toronto area and a best-selling author. Uh, he's going to be with us for the second oh. half. Uh, John, did you like to say hello? Yes. Hi, how are you? Hey, John. Hi, hi. So, nice to meet you. Yeah, uh, John Matesh Patel nice is actually the uh, the president and founder of the uh, Chandler Film Festival in Chandler, Arizona. I've been talking about uh, all of the great work that he's been doing. So. Yes, I've been listening. Outstanding. So, uh, Matesh, John, where can just people? I let you know that I, I was in a Toronto before. You know, I lived for like four years over there, so I still my second home. <laughs> yeah, he's got northern roots, John. So, excellent, uh, excellent. Okay. Uh, so, Matesh, where can people go to learn more about the festival and more about your great work? Yeah, sure. Uh, Chandler, uh, ChandlerFilmFestival.com. 
all info are there uh, all the the schedule and ticketing coming soon uh, most likely next week or by end of uh, i would say beginning of december we should have it the final movie uh, and the schedule and ticketing available for for everyone so again mitesh thanks a lot for your time and uh, you know we'll, we'll definitely be in touch over the next little while all right thank you all right. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Uh, so, so that was uh, Mitesh Patel, the founder and president of the Chandler International Film Festival in Chandler, Arizona. I'm going to be doing a lot of work with them over the next little while. Uh, and again, big thanks to Mitesh for his time and to uh, our mutual friend and uh, collaborator, Lennox Carrington. Um, okay, so John, I'm just going to take a quick thing here. I'm just going to make a minor technical adjustment, and then we're going to get started with. Sure. Yeah, sorry about that. I just need. No, no problem. All right, uh, and uh, John, we don't need your camera, but uh, so I'm okay. just going to invite you to turn that off, and oh, we're okay. going to get started with John. Uh, all right, John Oda. John, am I first of all? I, I should have asked you this ahead of time. Am I pronouncing your last name properly, or? Uh... Perfect. It's perfect. Okay. All right. Great. Um, so big thank you to Michelle Shermain, who uh, has been a longtime friend of this show's and uh, is a member of what I affectionately refer to as my indie rat pack. These are a group of people that uh, I've become friends with over the course of the years. Uh, and we get together towards the end of the year for my last show and, and kind of horse around creative types from all walks. Uh, Michelle's a great filmmaker and a, a personality in the uh, Toronto area herself and does a lot of great work, uh, you know, with the community down there. And she came to me when I put out a call for guests and said, well, you should talk to my friend, John. And uh, I'm glad that I did because I've been doing some research on this. This kind of falls into another uh, you know, area of interest of mine. Um, now, to give you some information on John, uh, John Oda is the uh, best-selling author of a book called The Kitchen, which is kind of a historical take on the evolution of kitchens in North America. Uh, he's also uh, an architect by trade and, and uh, by design and has worked in, in that field uh, for a long time, since the, uh, the late 1970s. And he's got a book out, uh, again, called The Kitchen that was actually published through the, uh, the Penguin Division of Random House. Uh, so he's dialing in from the Toronto area, and we're going to be talking all about that and, and all the uh, cool stories that he's managed to collect. So uh, for the second half of the show, coming for proudly welcomes, and again, somebody else that I've had on here for the first time, and then I love having people on here uh, for the first time. Uh, John Alda is here. Uh, John, how are you? I'm good. I love your show. I've been listening to it, and it's, it's great. And thank you to Michelle. This is really nice. It's so nice to talk to you, and so nice to meet you and your audience. So uh, the first question, I, as I was kind of kidding with uh, with Matesh in the first half there, the, the first question I always ask for uh, everybody when they're on here for the first time, John, is uh, just a bit of an icebreaker. Did, did I get your bio information right, or is there anything that you'd like to add or modify? Nope, everything's great, except uh, one thing I'd like to add. I love to cook and eat. You do? I love to cook and eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, right out of the gate. Let's go for it. Okay. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, I mean, this is kind of an, an interesting concept that you've got here. I, I, I remember when I was in college, you know, the, the late Carl Witchell, who was one of my all-time favorite professors, uh, 
uh, I took a course on anthropology of eating for, uh, for uh, it was called Food and Creativity, and it was one of the most, I was loaded down with science classes, and, and I walked into Carl's class, and, and it was just like a breath of fresh air taking that humanities class. Uh, so, so whenever I get a topic like this, I find it fascinating to talk to you guys, quite frankly. So uh, yeah. I, I, guess, I, I guess, how did you come up with the idea for, for this as a book? Well, I love, I, like I said, I love to cook and eat. And the kitchen's my favorite room in the house. So, I, you know, I, I used to work on these renovation projects earlier in my life. And I would in, measure the entire mansions uh, of these places to draw base drawings for the renovation. And even though I liked the parlors and the entrances and the conservatories of these historical houses, I liked the kitchen the best. The other rooms were designed just to impress people with their wealth and their power and their status. But the, you know, when I got to the kitchen, the kitchen was simple, basic, austere. You know, those other rooms have all, all that uh, fancy uh, crown molding and fancy fireplaces and things. But the kitchen had this simple, functional look to it. It's a place designed for cooking and eating. And I love to eat. And I always felt most comfortable in the kitchen. It's my favorite room in the house. So I had to do a book on the kitchen. And there, there are not very many books on the kitchen. It just, for some reason, gets ignored. So it was a calling. It was something I had to do. So, and, and I mean, you kind of touch on this, that, that uh, for all the other, you know, rooms in the house, that this really is, you know, one of the centerpieces, right? And it, it, it's certainly the most utilitarian and, and, and functional areas of the house, right? This is where a lot yes. of the work so, gets. Yes. So today, yeah. today the, the kitchen is the centerpiece. It's the most important room in the house. But historically, it was the least desirable room in the house. It was the place where people uh, hid away their servants or their enslaved people, and they didn't want to smell anything when they were eating, and they didn't want to hear anything. So historically, it's it's the most un, you know undesirable room in the house. But through um, uh, history, it's just gained more status. Actually, just recent history, really, because um, even in the 1950s and in the 1960s, the kitchen was at the back of the house, and you can still see that in the houses that were that are still around. It was isolated at the back. It, in the 60s, it was the the realm of the woman of the house, and she was isolated at the back, and people were not allowed into the kitchen. If you went over for dinner, you were never supposed to go into her kitchen. It was her kitchen. So it was isolated back there. But during the 70s, there was a change in gender roles and, and a broadening of, of people who were encouraged and allowed to cook so that kids began to cook and men began to cook. It wasn't just females. And even guests began to cook. When guests came over, they were part. that was part of the entertainment for the evening. So it, it gradually became uh, the, the showcase of the house. Today, it's, it's the Super Bowl of the house, really, because when people, what's happening with houses now is that, you know, the dining room walls, the living room walls are coming down. And when people come into the house, you bring them right into the kitchen and sit them down at the, at the table, and the table's in the kitchen. And uh, that's the hub of the house. That's that, and people, 
uh, now they, they have these big islands and, and very nice refrigerators and, and stoves and ovens. And, and in a funny way, that becomes the status symbol of, of, uh, of the house is what, how nice your kitchen is. So, um, you know, instead of having, uh, parking your BMW out in the, uh, out in the alleyway or not in, in the driveway to show off your, your power and your wealth, you bring people into your kitchen and show off your re new refrigerator. So I actually like that better because then you're sharing, you're sharing things with your, with your friends and your family and your neighbors. <laughs> yeah, how, how elaborate you can make your, you know, your your stovetops and and uh, I mean, you see some of these things that you know on on things like the Food Network and you know you can't imagine. I mean, these things would rival some of the uh, the finest restaurants that you would see. Some of the, the yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, but but it sounds to me like you you you've really taken both a historical and an anthropological view of this. Yes, uh, I have. And, and, and what I did was, well, it all really started because um, we, my wife and I love to cook and entertain. And so okay. we, we, um, we built our own house, but we held back on, on some things in the kitchen because we were having some uh, budgetary problems. But now we've got, you know, we've got a chance to, uh, to add some things to make the kitchen nicer. And because right now the kitchen just isn't working for us. It's a little cramped. It's a little awkward and things are not in quite the right place. And in, in fact, you could say my wife hates our kitchen, which is not very good. So we want to renovate, but I tend to be, I tend to be an obsessive guy. So before I redesign, I want to know everything about the kitchen. So I went on a journey and I went on a journey to find the perfect kitchen. So I traveled all over North America to explore examples of excellent kitchen designs from throughout history. Because I wanted to find the origins of the kitchen and the historical development and the development of different foods and drinks. And so I, I visited the, the kitchens of, of, of Thomas Jefferson down in Virginia. I visited the kitchen of Georgia O'Keeffe, the American painter. Right. I visited Julia Child's kitchen and Louis Armstrong's kitchen and Elvis Presley's kitchen and many others. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to cherry pick the best features of all those designs so I could incorporate them into our own kitchen design. And then I cooked in the kitchens because I had to. I, I had to know if those kitchens worked. So I, I cooked <laughs> some of their uh, favorite recipes and, and ate them in the kitchens as well. So uh, I had a pretty good time. This, this this is cool. Okay, uh, I'm gonna have I'm, no. I'm gonna have fun with this. Uh, I, no, I, I, I went to Elvis's. I went to Elvis's kitchen, and uh, he liked meatloaf. Meatloaf was very important to Elvis. Right. So I uh, I made his meatloaf according to his recipe, and um, I was a little worried because in his recipe, actually Elvis did not cook, but his his cook Mary Jenkins cooked for him and did everything perfectly for him. And her recipe for meatloaf is made with hamburger and with crushed saltine crackers. Like cracker, those crackers you get at the grocery store. She puts those into the meatloaf. And then she adds tomato juice and ketchup into the whole mix. And I went, oh, man, how, this is, how, how is this going to taste? I don't know about this. And when I was making it, the, the hamburger mixture gets very wet. It's very loose. You know, I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a disaster. This is not going to be good. 
But then I made the Elvis meatloaf, and it was great. It was great. I mean, it, she she had okay, it. No, no, I, 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 I mean, am I getting this right that you actually managed to cook a meal in in, in Graceland, or, or was this well, another not one? That, of the... Not that meal. I came back and oh. made that in my kitchen because because. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. All right. But about three quarters of the uh, the kitchens I went to, I cooked in in the kitchen. And and made those recipes in the kitchen. And so, so, so yeah. So so I, I guess how do you go about securing permission to do that? I mean, you know, I, I, you know it, was, it was pretty funny. I I uh, was a little worried about that myself, but I just asked people. <laughs> and they said yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so I one of the things I cooked was I made I made uh, one my favorite architect is Frank Lloyd Wright. Right. So I went to this house called Kentuck Knob in, in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, it's a mid-century modern kitchen, 1950s kitchen, and I always wanted to make a baked Alaska in, in a Frank Lloyd Wright kitchen because baked Alaska is that round dome uh, dessert with uh, uh, meringue on the outside and inside is cake and ice cream. And it's like yeah. it's it's a classic mid-century modern. And then they they flambe it, you know, so that it looks like a, a great big round uh, uh, ball, big snowball. Yeah, anyway, every, so every, every cruise that I've ever taken, they always bring that out as a big production number. You have those, you hit yeah. the nail on the head. Yes, yeah. on, it, they're really proud of that. So it's it's one of those show showpiece desserts. So I, I, I was going to Kentucky now, but I was talking to the people about arranging a visit. And then I said to them, you know, I always wanted to make a, a, a baked Alaska in, in a Frank Lloyd Wright kitchen. What do you think? And they said, and I expected, of course, I expected a big fat no. Like, are you crazy? What, who do you think you are? And then they said, yes, what a good idea. Like, okay, all right. And I practically packed my bags in five minutes, really. I, I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I just asked people, and, and they said yes. So, so <laughs> I, 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 guess, I, I mean, with all this ground to cover, I, I, I guess how do you map out a strategy for how you're going to conduct your research? Uh, I did um, – uh, they were they were their kitchens and houses of people who I admired. Okay. And their houses where I researched where I knew they had historical kitchens. And also I was interested to know if I could cook in the kitchens. And it wasn't really apparent uh, whether I'd be able to cook. They'd let me cook in all these kitchens, but I, I was really fortunate. I was allowed to cook in about three quarters of them. But they, they were um, a lot of them were kitchens of people who I admired, like Elvis, like Georgia O'Keeffe, and uh, uh, Julia Child, and, and people like that. So that was a lot of fun. That was a, a real motivator for me to get out there and uh, and visit these houses. So, uh, so but I was never sure whether they were going to let me cook right to the last second. So, so what are some of the surprising things that you've learned going into to places like this, like Thomas Jefferson and you know Louis Armstrong and Julia Child and on and on? I, I get you know what are some of the things that, that kind of caught you by surprise that you didn't know going into them? I would example. say the biggest the biggest surprise for me was taste. 
I went okay. to the, for instance, for instance, I thought, I thought things would be very bland, but it's quite the opposite. Their food was delicious, was outstanding. So I went to, um, the first kitchen I went to was the Pilgrim's Kitchen in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And the, the Pilgrims came to America in 1620. So, you know, in 1620, the United States of America is not even a glint in anybody's eye. There was no such thing as the United States of America yet. And things were very primitive. And I, I got to Plymouth and um, we're inside this shack and it's very primitive and, and very austere. And um, I thought, you know, what? how good can the food be? The food's going to be terrible. And, and the, all morning, the work was really hard. And I had to, I had to wash all the vegetables. And, and we had dull knives. And I was sweating. Oh, and inside, inside the house, it's, it's just an open fire. So there's smoke everywhere. And I was right. really miserable. I was really tired. But but. What was interesting was that they brought all these spices with them on the on the Mayflower. They had cinnamon and ginger and salt and pepper. And, and they, so they had all these spices in the 1620s. And so we made, we made um, a duck stew. We roasted little quails over the fire in butter. They had lots of butter. And we fried pumpkin over an open fire in a frying pan and, and added cinnamon and nutmeg and um when the time came to eat i thought it'd be really bland i mean you know i had to work so hard um when it got into my mouth it was fabulous the food was fabulous i mean the the, the big surprise for me was the fried pumpkin and it, it it's almost better than like the food tastes better than what we have today because for instance for that fried pumpkin we pulled the pumpkin right out of the ground and, and cut it up and fried it. So it's immediately fresh. And also for the spices, for the cinnamon and for the nutmeg and the salt and pepper, I had to grind them with uh, a mortar and pestle. So that's, that's really fresh spices. That's not something that you buy at the grocery store that's in a plastic bag. Those are uh, spices that are immediately ground and all the oils and the aromas come out right then. And I and uh, it was the same with uh, the quails that we ate. Um, they were uh, bathed in globs of butter, and in the duck stew that we made, like, that was a fresh duck. They would have, uh, you know, that's not a frozen duck. There was no such thing as a freezer. No, and I mean, you 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 you're touching, on you're touching on something really, you know, important in, in the sense that uh, you know the reliance on fresh ingredients before. You yes. know, the days where everything was, you know, processed within an inch of tastelessness, right? The, yes. The, the... I agree. Uh, when I was at the, the, at the Georgia O'Keeffe house in New Mexico, I took a Georgia O'Keeffe cooking class. And they had a very good chef uh, making Georgia O'Keeffe recipes. And Georgia O'Keeffe, by the way, loved to eat. She loved to cook. And she loved the garden. So I took this Georgia O'Keeffe cooking class. And he was explaining. We, we made one of her favorite recipes of dessert. It was an apple pie cake. So he, he explained he had his apples flown in from fresh, freshly picked from upper New York State. And, and, and we're in, at the time, we're in New Mexico making this thing. 
So he would get freshly picked apples from New York State and have them flown in. And he said that because he said the best apple desserts are made with apples that are freshly picked. That a lot of times, and I didn't realize this at the time, you know, we're eating apples that have been in storage for five or six months. And um, so he's, he uh, only cooks with the freshest ingredients, with fresh picked apples uh, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, spices and herbs that, are, uh, herbs that are freshly picked and spices that are, are grown with a mortar and pestle too. Yeah, so, so freshness is so important. The ingredients are so important. In, in making uh, uh, delicious tasting food. You're right on. Now, now, in terms of the the actual publication of the book, when did you actually get it finished and, and how long has it been available for uh, for purchase? And you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I, I, I guess, uh, I, I know that you got it available in a number of different formats, but. Yes, well, uh, it's uh, it took about three years to write. Okay. And the book, and and I, I, I had a, I was not in a rush. It was a lot of fun traveling around to all these places, uh, and then um, it was released on February the twenty fifth, twenty twenty of this year. So, uh, and then, uh, and then about two weeks later, um, the pandemic uh, shut everything down, and I was right. ready to go on a book tour, but it got shut down. So, uh, over the uh, the last few months, I've had a very nice time meeting people and doing uh, Zoom calls and presentations and meeting people like you and having uh, a really nice time just talking to people. And, uh, and I feel very grateful and honored to, uh, to, to meet people like you. Uh, well, I, I very much appreciate that, John. And it's, uh, you know, the, the feeling is entirely mutual. I have a lot of fun doing the show and getting to talk to you guys yeah. every single week. So, <laughs> so uh, I mean, it sounds to me like I, I was reading some of the press on your website that, that this has been pretty well received too. That, that uh, you've done well with it too. Huh? Well, I'm very grateful to people. There's, I've had a lot of uh, wonderful support from people okay. and, and uh, people saying nice things and, and a lot of help, a lot of help writing this right. book. So uh, really, really uh, a wonderful uh, experience for me. But, you know, I think I, I'm, I'm very grateful that, that, that it's been well received. But, you know, I, eating and, and drinking is something that we all have in common. Everybody likes to eat and drink. And so, uh, especially right now, with the, with the way that we're spending time inside our houses, eating and drinking is is uh, is is the major activity. So uh, I look at my Instagram, and, and I just want to eat the phone. People are all cooking and baking and and making wonderful things, and it's it's a very nice thing to see. So yeah, cooking is and eating is something that we all have in common. And um, it's, you know, I think that just for me, it's a really nice way to, to uh, communicate with people and to learn about different cultures. And <clears throat> because uh, it's, it's just sort of a, a, a nice um, uh, friendly way, a friendly doorway into people's lives. You know, you just uh, talk about uh, what do you cook or what are you having for dinner tonight? And uh, it's just a, a, a nice entryway to talk to people. And everybody loves to eat and cook. So 
it's a no, great thing. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a universal truth, and it's uh, you know something that brings people closer together, and everybody's got an opinion about it, right? So yeah, yeah. Do you like uh, to cook? Yeah, I do. Uh, my I, I uh, my big thing is uh, the one time that my wife will <laughs> let me have the kitchen to myself is for breakfast. So I, I'm. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, yeah. If you come to my house for brunch on a Sunday, you're you know come with an empty stomach because uh, you know all the people don't go home hungry. So, but uh, I mean, my my wife okay. and I are, are big big restaurant buffs and big you know, culinary buffs and, and we like to travel too, which is, uh, you know, something else that you touched on that, that you can learn a lot about, you know, different ways of life and by, you know, seeing what the palate is like in different countries and, and developing appreciation. Some of the things that you're going to enjoy and some of them you're not going to enjoy, but, but uh, yeah. you know, it, it's neat to be able to see these kinds of things and to see what, you know, kinds of things that people find common that they're, they're working with on a regular basis. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I find uh, it's a really enjoyable way to to learn about different cultures and history and, and about people, just like you said. Yeah. Um, now I know that you have an audiobook uh, to to go along with this. Did you do the uh, Did you do the audio yourself, or did you have somebody else work on it with you? Uh, I was. I had somebody else work with me for sure. Uh, I was oh, you did. Very okay. fortunate. Right. Yeah. To. Uh, um, my publisher is Penguin Random House, so they asked me to come in and to their offices, and they have a nice little uh, uh, studio, uh, radio kind of radio studio. I've never been in anything like that before, and uh, yeah, so I just uh, read passages of the book in this uh, nice studio, and uh, they were they were very kind to me. And no, um, that, that's what yeah, I meant. Whether, whether you did the vocal work yourself or whether you had somebody else do it for you, so. Oh, they, they uh, are very fortunate to be with uh, PRH. They go uh, first class. It was, uh, uh, I, I, could, I would have a hard time doing it myself like that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and there, yeah, I mean, such respect but, for radio technicians and, and for the, uh, the sound technicians. And um, yeah, it was a, a good experience just to, uh, to read it and, and to go through that. And then they would, sometimes I, I would not pronounce things correctly and they would say, oh, wait a minute, John, wait a minute. And then just stop the whole thing and, and uh, type up something on the computer and, and a guy with some mystery person would come on and say, Eprang, Eprang. <laughs> or, or, or they would say, Worcester sauce, Worcester sauce. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're if you're writing a book that's going to be catering to foodies, then you know you're going to want to make sure the details <laughs> like that are, you know, you want to make sure that you're on point, right? So, um, yeah. <laughs> have you thought about you know doing a follow-up book either internationally or or uh, I, I guess what's next for you? Uh, well, I'm I I just like to go out there and research and to find things. And um, I've got an idea of, of where I might go with this, but um, uh, it's still in the formation stages. Um, but I have done some uh, fascinating research. One of, my, one of the things that I'm researching right now is um, Lucy Maud Montgomery. She wrote uh, Anne of Green Gables. Right. And right. Um, so I'm 
her house is uh, outside of Toronto here. And I went to visit the house. And um, she's so entertaining to study because she has mood swings. She's up and she's down. And, and um, um, she wrote her diaries. And her diaries, she wrote and rewrote them and rewrote them. So they're, they're quite curated. She knew people would, would read her diaries. And one of the things that she likes to write about is her house. And so she moved into this house in Leeksdale near Stouffville here uh, in Ontario. And uh, alternately, she likes her house and she hates her house. So it's a lot of fun for me to read. And uh, I think it just depends on what her mood was that day and what i find so fascinating about her diaries and what how she writes about her house and her life is that it's a little bit like anne of green gables in anne of green gables Anne, some days she's so happy and the sun is shining and she's in a great mood and other days anne of green gables writes oh i don't have any friends oh i don't know what i'm gonna do it's so funny. Anne is just like Lucy Bond Montgomery and her house. So that's that's one of the uh, the things that I'm having a lot of fun with right now. Is, is, you get a little window into Canadiana. Yeah, that's right. And I'm also doing, I'm also doing um, Hot Dogs Curious Minds right now, which is a great honor. So um, I don't know if you know about Hot Docs Curious Minds, but it's it's run out of the Hot Docs Theater here in Toronto okay. at uh, Bathurst and Bloor. So I'm doing a series on uh, cultural icons, houses of, of uh, cultural icons and how their houses affect their lives and how the, how the houses affect their greatness and their lives at home. So that's, that's, that's really a fun thing that I'm doing right now. And it's, it's uh, Thomas Jefferson, Georgia O'Keeffe, Julia Child, Louis Armstrong, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Elvis Presley. So I've, I've, they're one-hour presentations, um, and they're streaming, and uh, it, it uh, incorporates um, my presentation and a lot of visuals and uh, a fair number of videos. So it's, it's, it's been lively, and uh, it's been a lot of fun doing that. You know what, John? I can tell the joy in your voice, and and it's infectious. I got I, I, I to tell you, I, I like it. And, uh, and oh, I'm proud that's to have very you nice. On. Well, well, what's your favorite dish? If if you if you had to be on a desert island by yourself, what would you eat? Ah, uh, uh, that's hard to say. Uh, it depends on what kind of mood yeah. I'm in. But I I have. Uh, I, I can tell you that I love going to New England because I, I, I have a serious fried clam problem. Uh, oh, so, so you, you know, po' po' boy sandwiches and things like that. That uh, you yeah. know, I'm I'm big on seafood. I, I uh, oh, you know, that's I, good. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, yeah, have you ever you? been far a little farther south? My uh, spouse comes from um, Maryland. Comes from Baltimore. And they eat crabs. Uh, uh, um, what, what the bay there? Bay crabs, and they steam these crabs, and it's a real delicacy of the region. And it's it's not like they eat crabs and with some fries and with some bread. 
in a salad or anything like that. They just eat crabs. <laughs> like it's just a, a pitcher of beer and steamed crabs with uh, the spice called Old Bay Spice. Yeah, That's yeah, the area. yeah. And they put, put it in a great big steamer. And then they got little hammers and little uh, picks. And, um, you know, no need for salad. <laughs> how, how, how about you? I mean, you're you're my guest here. How, how, how about you? What are what are some of your favorites that uh, that are on the top of your cravings list? Well, you know, every once in a while, I really uh, like to eat duck, and I love like Peking duck, roast yeah. duck, duck al orange. There's just something very distinct about that taste. And then I'll uh, we had roast duck uh, a few weeks ago. And then I don't have to have it again for a few months, like for about six months, because it's it's. That's usually young. a sign of a good favorite that it's, you get a you, you get a good Jones for it, and then you can come back to it a little while later, right? Yeah. It, you know, it's yeah. it's not special if you have it all the time, right? So. It's true. It's true. Yeah, and and uh, <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> so uh, I'd be eating duck every day. <laughs> A duck uh, a day will keep the doctor away. Well, if I was eating fried foods every day, I'd be even more trouble with my doctor than I am right now. So, uh, well, that's great that you love seafood in New England. That's wonderful. I really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really well, we, that. Even when we went out to, uh, to to Nova Scotia and took a driving tour around there, and uh, you know, they're dragging the things, you know, the lobsters and stuff like that, right out of the ocean. And I, I I've often said that if my company, where I, I worked during the daytime, if they offered to send me out to the Maritimes anywhere, my house would be on the market like that. You know, so uh, ah, that's great. Know, how, I love it out there. How did you get to like seafood so much? That's that's. A, that's it was something I I don't know. It was something that that it was always served on special occasions in my house. I think I got it from my grandparents. Uh, that that you know around Christmas time, you know, the, the Christmas Day was for uh turkeys, but but Christmas Eve was always for lobsters. So uh, you know, oh. that was so that that was uh, and my uh, you know, my my parents always enjoyed it and. Uh, you know, so I I just developed a taste for it ever since I was a kid. So yeah, yeah. So. And so you know what's kind of interesting is is that that um you had that around Christmas time, and so I mean the taste is great, but then you you know it might be an unconscious thing too. We were just talking about anthropological things. There's an association with happy times. Yeah, and, it's and with good times and family, and it just makes you feel good. Yeah, and we, we used to we used to vacation in uh, Virginia Beach every year, and of course, uh, you know, all these little you know fried food shacks will be all littered up and down the beach, right? So, uh, I mean, oh. yeah, that, that you know, you're right. It was an association. I hadn't even thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. It was just an, you know association with good times, with my time, with uh, you know with the people that you care about. So. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah, and and the 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 seafood would have been so fresh. If you're right yeah. on the beach like that. Yeah. And, you know, the accessibility of it and, and uh, you know, but uh, I, John, I would love to keep this conversation going, but we're out of time here. But, but. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. To know you and your food and your family and your plans. <laughs> you, know, you know what? We're, we're going to have you back, okay? Because this conversation is not over. Okay. Right. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> right. All right. Where can oh, people good. go? Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? 
I have uh, a website. It's called, that's very kind of you to ask, johnotahome.com. So it's www.johnotahome.com. Uh, and it's J-O-H-N-O-T-A home.com. But also I have a, my email address. I love getting emails from people and I love being in contact with people. My email address is roota at rogers.com. So that's R-O-W-E-O-T-A at rogers.com. Roota so, at rogers.com. And, and, so, and I'd love to hear from people and, and it'd be great to chat. So if uh, I'm going to be circulating the link to the book, uh, again, you know, big thank you to Michelle for, for teeing this oh, up. This, is, this has been a ride. Yes. I, I, I love conversation. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, John, you know, thanks a lot. Okay. And, oh, uh, and I, thank you for and having I, me. Uh, and I'd be happy to have you back anytime you want. All right. Oh, great. Great. Right. Great. We can talk more about food and our favorite foods. Yeah, and, and, and travel, and, and travel too, which is uh, yeah. you know, something yeah. else that I love. So, uh, so that's going to do it for me for this week. We had Natasha Patel from uh, the Chandler Film Festival on in the first half. Again, ChandlerFilmFestival.com. Uh, and again, John Oda in the second half. His book is called The Kitchen. Uh, you can find this online through Random House and Penguin and uh uh, again, this this was a fun hour, I got to tell you. Uh, so I'm going to be back next week. I got uh, Chris Gaines is going to be here, a filmmaker who reached out to me on Twitter. Uh, and again, take care of yourselves and each other. And uh, I'll, I'll call it for a week. Until then, John, just I'm going to ask you to stay on the line for a quick second. But I'm going to call it, and I'm going to say cut, front, wrap, and I am done. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.